Guys, I had an excellent conversation with JT Pat in this episode. Great guy. And it's funny because we went into all different territory um, and had very little prepared, and yet we covered so much. Uh, so I think you guys are going to enjoy this. I, I listened back to the last episodes, as I always do. I'm the one doing the editing. And I realized, wow, we went really long <laughs> with uh, the reads that we have. And I think it's funny just because of the fact that we it happens because we genuinely enjoy all the products we advertise in here. That's the God's honest truth. There's times where I'll call Chris and we'll end up talking about uh, someone who happens to be a sponsor and just how much we love what they're doing. And then it gets into the show sometimes. Uh, but I won't go as long this time. I promise, guys. <laughs> as always, this show is sponsored by Fort Scott Munitions. Fort Scott is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states, as well as direct online through fortscottmunitions.com. Use our exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of this podcast, the BATTLELINE podcast. I'm getting so many people who email me and are like, they're out of everything. Yes, it's a kind of a fact in the society we're living in at the moment that all ammunitions manufacturers are out of stock on a lot of things, but they're restocking as quickly as they can. They're doing some amazing giveaways. I should throw that out there. If you're listening to this on Monday, uh, I believe you have till like midnight tonight to get on the, that uh, Tonto's Toolbox giveaway. So go there now, fortscottmunitions.com, uh, also for that Tonto's Toolbox giveaway. Promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. And uh, Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. And of course, you've heard us talk about them on previous shows and the last show. We love Medieval Industries. Today's show is sponsored in part by Medieval Industries. They manufacture the only fully adjustable foregrip on the market. The 360-degree VFG mounts to all tactical rails and allows you to swivel and lock the grip into any position on the fly. Whether you're hunting, shooting for sport, or challenging yourself in precision tactical shooting competitions, this unique adjustable foregrip will become a natural extension of your rifle. Medieval has expanded their product line to include a quick detach tripod and most recently quick detach adjustable monopod. They've designed and engineered the necessary components to create a tactical shooting system and have integrated the QD tripod into their line of modular quick detach accessories. Medieval's newest setup, the Overwatch Commander, is an extremely stable shooting platform that's quickly and easily deployed in tight spaces. This new lightweight compact system is capable of what many heavier, larger tripods on the market can do and allows for widespread accessibility because of its small footprint. The entire system weighs just under six pounds and it deploys in seconds. You've heard Chris talk about it, and several guys in the special operations military community have said, damn, I wish I invented this thing, but you didn't. 
Medieval Industries invented it, and that's why you got to check them out. Medieval Industries is committed to providing all gun enthusiasts with precision-engineered, high-quality weapon accessories. All products are designed and developed with first-rate materials for strength and endurance. Visit mid-evil.com. Do it right now, mid-evil.com. They are innovating things that you have not seen before. So you're going to love it. If you're an enthusiast, if you're someone who's keeping up with the latest in gun technology, check them out. See, that was not as long as last time, as promised. Uh, I'm going to get right over to it. None other than author J.T. Patton. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The Switch is on Battle Line Podcast. J.T. Patton on the show, intelligence contractor with government intelligence for many years, military special operations community, uh, not veteran, but working in the intelligence field with people in special operations. Always have to be very clear on that. Very much um, so. <laughs> and uh, thriller writer, latest book is Presidential Retreat. The last time I spoke to you was probably a good two years ago, and Things have changed pretty drastically. I don't think anybody thought we would be where we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's been unusual for the for sure. Uh, but good to see you again. Thank you. No, I well, it's interesting for you because I wanted to get into this. Is like we had Brad Thor on the show and Jack yeah. Carr on the show, and those guys are you know they're with a major imprint. They're used to doing signings on the road, and the way they promote a book. Uh, demands a lot of in-person stuff, shaking hands, signing books, meeting the fans. For you, this is this is only part of what you do as a career, although you've written many books. So I'm wondering, has it affected what you do at all? Because you're still pumping out books and, and continuing to write. Yeah, it doesn't affect me at all because uh, if I'm selling less than 10,000 books uh, a year, <laughs> they're still going to buy them. <laughs> I mean, you know, Brad Thor and, and Jack uh, on their worst days are still going to kick my ass. So <laughs> whether they have a snowstorm, a pandemic that keeps them, uh, you know, those numbers are still going to keep on going. Um, for me, I, I think if anything, what has helped is the opportunity for people to be you know, at home, spend a little bit more time on social media, maybe pick up on some things. Um, and, uh, and, and that's increased a little bit of the reading. I'd say similarly, you know, I've got to be a little bit strategic also in my audience and, and who I'm targeting. 
And it's been funny because the pandemic brought about two two kind of unique opportunities. Um, I'm friends with a number of the guys over at Horse Soldier Bourbon, and uh, and during you know really the the first couple of weeks where people were freaking out just being at home and had nothing else to do, and they were starting to miss some people. Um, you know, Scotty Neal had sent me a bottle of uh, of Horse Soldier. So I walked around the neighborhood and a few of the guys who drink bourbon, I started just pouring some, you know, glasses on, on their porch. And, uh, and we started having this uh, Tuesday night or Wednesday night whiskey walk. Okay. Uh, and, and so as I started posting these things on social media, I started getting a lot of, um, you know, bourbon aficionados kind of following along. And these guys were like, Hey, I really like, you know, your, your books, uh, because they're a little bit different from the traditional military uh, style. So I, it was funny because all of a sudden this other market came out where these bourbon aficionados are, or at least some of them, you know, I, if I put a parallel of, are you a whiskey drinker or a bourbon drinker? Because they wanted that distinction almost. It was like the same thing with the military thrillers. They didn't want just kind of a linear military book. They wanted a little bit more. So I started building a little bit of a network in the bourbon community uh, for some of my books. And then, you know, maybe a month later, we started getting a break in the weather and uh, my son's just going crazy. He's 13 and he's like, what can we possibly do, dad? And, uh, and he's like, let's go fishing. That's and, cool. uh, so we, we started going out to some local ponds and we weren't catching shit. You know, it was just, it was <laughs> some certain days it was snowing. And, uh, and then we went and we, we did go to Florida, uh, during spring break time, I rented a place in Marco to kind of quarantine and, uh, and we were catching a lot of fish there. So we came right. back and, uh, and he's like, let's keep going fishing. So again, we start posting pictures of the fish. Now we've got the fishing community. I'm thinking, well, that's kind that's of interesting. So cool. I wonder if anybody in the fishing community reads anything. Well, all of a sudden it comes out that a lot of these pro fishers do a lot of audiobooks. So, you know, it, it then started taking off there where I started building followers from bourbon drinkers to fishing folks that were reading books that I would have never thought about and had the pandemic not been there, um, you know, probably wouldn't have done much difference. So I, you know, I've probably increased my readership by, you know, 200. So no, that's, I, I, I know you're, you know, downplaying, but that, that's awesome, man. And I think people are really, look, there's a lot of negatives with what's going on. It's very easy to point out the negative, yeah. but the, the positive is I do think people are enjoying the outdoors. I certainly am. And people that you wouldn't expect, like, I know you're a music guy. I don't know if you've seen this. It's so weird to see Nikki six has moved to uh, Wyoming and it's like, he's out fishing with his family. Like you don't think of that as like the guy who does shout at the devil and, and he's out of California. There's a ton of people I'm thinking of moving. I mean, there's a ton of people just, moving to new areas and uh at least for me because i'm i'm on long island which is very different than living in yeah. new york city but one of the benefits of living here is you're about 40 minutes from the city and all of those benefits are gone right now right so i think people are looking at other places and and doing things like you're doing going fishing spending time with family going hunting for some people um yeah, it's uh, people are, are enjoying new things including reading i think it's also been interesting that um I think it's funny because as you've got on one hand, I, I'm not going to bring this to a political uh, spin, but as, as you've got some of this divide between, you know, groups and that. You do? Hand, I, th I thought we were all in harmony right now. <laughs> uh, but on the one hand, so you've got this divide on the other. But on the other hand, you've got a kind of a coming together of a lot of people in social media that wouldn't normally re interact. And, uh, and I'm finding that a lot of some of the celebrities even 
are doing a lot more interaction with with regular people, um, which is creating some also unique opportunities for social media for people to get a little bit different recognition. I mean, you mentioned the Jack Cars and the Brad Thors. I mean, these guys are also in quarantine. And so I've seen how they have helped other readers, uh, I'm sorry, other writers by just retweeting their stuff. Um, I had just the other day, I got a follow from Morgan Fairchild and I was like, boy, the 12 year old in me would, would just be ecstatic, <laughs> you know, but it's just, it's just weird things like that. How you can just have some of these interpersonal connections too, for people experiencing the same thing, no matter what their, you know, classes, their, their, their trade or anything like that. Well, I th and I also think books like yours are an escape from everything. There's only so much news we could all consume, which is all, all everybody is doing and yeah, people need an escape from that. Your books are certainly an escape. They're they're not political. They're not partisan. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of uh, rainbows and unicorns in my book to, to cheer up today. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, it's uh, it's it, I, I would say that you, that has been by, by design a little bit to go a little bit nonpartisan um, because I think behind the walls sometimes it, it really doesn't matter. Um, and, and that's, that's what I was trying to convey, but you know, it's also reflective of me too. I don't, I, you won't see much of that on my uh, postings on social media because I, I don't get involved too much with, you know, the political commentary and, and getting all, you know, frazzled and things by that. Which is probably the right thing to do. I mean, we spoke about it with Brad Thor because for a moment, Brad Thor was like very, involved in the political stuff. And I mean, I, I think books like yours or even his, you want to appeal to everybody on the political spectrum. You don't want to alienate people who want to check out what you do because there's people interested in the military thriller, black ops genres from all, all walks of life. Yeah. And, and again, I, I do think, you know, the, the volume of sales and, and interactions you have is also going to drive that. I too was just having an email uh, conversation with Brad the other day and, uh, you know, he's got a, a whole different challenge than I do. I don't have as much of a readership as he does. So I can kind of segment some of my my commentary based on who is following me or who I don't want to follow or things like that. But, you know, when a guy's getting tens of thousands of followers and from that, you've got to kind of weigh that balance of what you are going to communicate. Now, I think Brad and, and again, I don't want to you know speak for him or anything, but he does seem to speak his mind anyway, and wears a lot of his uh, things on on his sleeve. Um, and so I think oh, that, I feel like a little bit less lately, though. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, because yeah. remember at, at one point he was like, "I'm running for president." I'm like, I don't know about that, but <laughs> but but either way, I, I think that people you know know what they're going to get, and and he's true to himself. Um, but I, but I think some other folks probably are, are struggling a little bit with that. Uh, I don't know, you know, how, how Jack is dealing with some of his increased um, visibility and, and how, you know, any commentary he makes, you know, may come out. But again, I think he keeps things pretty uh, close to the vest also there from a, a political standpoint. Yeah, it's almost the same as, you know, I think what we do and, and what Chris does on his social media. I mean, we're all, all of us, everybody that we mentioned, including yourself, are, are very unapologetically pro-American, but that's not a political statement. Right, right. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, I think one of the, one of the sad parts of that is how you do still express patriotism and interest but while also, and I'm not saying that your your people would cave not to do it, but there's a certain way to also uh, not be in your face and to be safe about it. Um, 
you know, do I do I have on my Jeep a bunch of uh, flags, you know, flying behind it? Uh, no. Can you still be American and proud of it without conveying a certain image or or a or or a distraction to some people by that? So again, it's it's a balance of again being that true to yourself, uh, true to what you want to feel, but but also recognizing that there are some sensitivities uh, every now and then. Yeah. Um, I, and I want to get into your background for people just checking this out who might not be familiar with you, because uh, you have an interesting background. You're you're not like Brad Thor, who didn't, you know, and admittedly didn't really live the type of thing that he writes about. He does converse with guys who did yeah. um, or like Jack Carr, on the other hand, who is a special ops military veteran. You're not from that background either. So I, I'd love for the audience to hear what you have done, because it's pretty you do have a pretty remarkable resume, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a freak. Um, I was <laughs> I was a, an ROTC failure in college. Um, was introduced to the intelligence community and uh, kind of got backdoored into that um, while I was doing a lot of work on management consulting and understanding supply chains, um, fraud, uh, financial crime, things like that. Uh, I was drawn deeper into economic espionage and started collaborating with the intelligence community uh, at an early time before 9-11. When 9-11 happened, some of those connections made it uh, very natural for me to step into um, a relationship with an organization and, and use some of those same skills to either counter IEDs um, by understanding the networks. And then once I got into counterterrorism, um, again, kind of through that back door, and, and it, it led to some of my education uh, in foreign languages. I had taken Arabic and French, studied abroad and Spanish. So some of those things were kind of natural. Um, and then when I uh, moved into a little bit of the, the darker corners of uh, the intelligence community and, uh, and special operations, special activity support, um, I started taking what we would use to roll up the networks in counterterrorism and use it to identify how we can actually build personas, build platforms for our own people to do uh, discrete mission work. And so um, started getting involved at, at very high levels with some of that planning activity and support and ensuring that uh, if we wanted to go into places that we shouldn't, um, how would we have to look, who would we have to use, and, and et cetera. So um, fun stuff there, but uh, no, not a veteran, uh, not a... Um, um, uh, a shooter by any means, and um, but uh, but had had an opportunity to do some uh, really interesting stuff, and still keep a finger in it lightly, which also causes some problems. Yeah, no, and we can get into that. What what time period did you get involved in intelligence? Um, well, I graduated college in '91, and so I started getting closer involved shortly thereafter and uh and again some of those were on some informal basis and then uh the formality of it was really more towards um oh, probably that mid part of the 90s i got involved with the uh, phoenix group uh who was doing some human training and uh then got passed around the dia uh, community for a little while too so yeah it's been it's been it's been a good period of time i my my creds expired uh, 2014, so that was the last that I did any classified work. But uh, again, still advised from time to time. People are probably wondering how you get involved in that world if you don't have a, a background in the military, because I think typically we think of guys who 
are, are in the CIA, for example, they, they come from that special operations background or, yeah. or military intelligence background. So how do you go from college to there? Uh, you know, for me, for me, again, it was, it was a bit of a mistake. Uh, I was so, so much of a, a failure in ROTC. And yet, you know, the guys knew that I had a passion for it. Um, they made an introduction. Uh, so my agency recruiter, Jerry, was uh, down at Illinois State University, and um, and I kept in contact with him. Um, it just so happened that he also was friends with uh, Dewey Claridge. Um, so there was a lot of things that you couldn't have built and you couldn't have thought of. Um, and it was just a lot of random happenings um, that go from one meeting to another. Now, I think that you know, when you look at uh, the community itself and how it's, it, it, you know, I don't want to make it too too spectacular, but, you know, let's say shadowy. Um, if you think about that whole Wayne Simmons debacle, um, he was oh, rubbing yeah, elbows and, with the right people. And so it made it look like. And, and a lot of the audience. Year. Yeah, I'm just thinking a lot of the audience might not know who we're talking about. So an individual who had claimed to be uh, a CIA, CIA recruiter or a uh, uh, consult a contractor and uh, rubbed elbows with a lot of real legit folks from the community. Um, and, uh, and then it, it, I think, you know, it, it seemed to fall apart. There was some fraud, there was some, some problems. <clears throat> I don't want to get too much into it because I, I, I'd met him a number of times, but I'd never, you know, knew him really personally. But you, when you, when you, I was introduced to him by somebody who was a very legitimate person, um, I figure, well, you know, he must be the guy. Now, I, I, I thought he was a little bit smarmy, uh, so I didn't care to push that. But I, from a cred standpoint, you know, I, I would have had no 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 difference of, of opinion or knowledge. You know, uh, I, I don't know if I ever told you my interactions with Wayne Simmons. No, I don't think I do. So when I was working at Sirius XM Patriot um, and I was the producer for the David Webb show, we had him on as a guest several times, you know, like on a weekly basis. And uh, I had his number. I would speak to him on the phone. Seemed like a good enough guy. I mean, super well-spoken. And, you know, from my perspective, because people have to realize, like, if enough people say, hey, this guy is legit, I'm not military. I'm not CIA. I It's very hard for me to vet someone. But you look at a book that he puts out and it has like a Donald Rumsfeld quote on the cover. Uh, and I believe the quote was literally something like Wayne Simmons uh, knows what he's talking about because he's been there and he's done that. And it's like, all right, well, that's good enough for me. I, I don't I'm not necessarily a fan of Donald Rumsfeld, but he's certainly a legit guy yeah. in the community. And then you learn that this guy was an advisor for the war in Iraq. He was able to fake it to that to that extent. Um, and actually wait probably a year or two, maybe before he was even arrested, Jack Murphy said to me, D you know, don't have this guy on. He's, he's not who he says he is. And I'm like, all right, well, I take Jack at his word. And then sure enough, an article comes up, but it's really crazy. Like in, in your field, how these people could get on Fox news, they can get on different media outlets and completely make up a fake background. And, and for the audience, it's very different from if someone says I'm a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger, you'll get called out pretty quickly if you wind up on TV because that community is is going to say no, no one knows this guy. Um, the CIA is not going to say that we that we don't know this because they can't confirm or deny that type of thing. You're right. And, and that is a problematic, especially for certain people. Um 
you know, like myself who have done some things, but you're not necessarily released to be able to talk about it. So there's kind of these winks and nudges and people who know you can make introductions. So I met Wayne through uh, a conference that was happening in DC. It was an intelligence conference. So, you know, here I am brought up into a room where people are having a private party, uh, a big suite, and I've got uh, Dick Marchenko, um, Bill Cowan, and uh, guys like Wayne Simmons. And so you know that at least half of them are legit. And when you meet one guy and he's like, oh, have you met this person? And then, hey, have you met this person? You know, et cetera. We, none of these people really know each other that well, but you know, it's a social setting. And so in some of those uh, areas, you're, you know, you, you pass a drink and you pass a handshake and all of a sudden, you know, some of those light creds are dropped and maybe some names are dropped, but you really never go into, Hey, who are you? Um, and that's, and I think we've talked about this in the back in, in the past with, um, if you're dealing with some military folks, there's a little bit better vetting because you can talk yeah. about units and things like that. But in the intelligence community, you can't talk about half the things anyway. And, uh, and so there, there are loopholes and opportunities to exploit that for sure. And it's, it's a, it's a big CI problem. Yeah, I didn't realize until I got involved in this field, really, you know, meeting the guys I did with where I was previously and that there's so many guys who, who are like dying to be a part of this community Yeah, that they just make stuff up, you know, to get on TV and and hopefully make money. And in the, in the uh, case of Wayne Simmons, I don't even think he made that much money with his fake credentials. Yeah, I, it, it doesn't appear so or not enough, but, you know, it is. I, I think it's like a lot of Celebridome. Um, you know, there are certain people that are just in awe of celebrities and want to interact with them. Same thing goes true with the special operations community, the intelligence community. And there's a lot of people with clout uh, and money uh, that can do it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of a one uh, a, a political wife that that I know. Um, she is involved with a lot of folks from the special operations community. Now, she seems to be a great person, but what that's provided is giving her some access uh, to things that they know and and contacts and stuff. Now, if somebody had a little bit more of a, a malicious intent, um, I mean, that is considered uh, an intelligence threat. Um, so, you know, especially if somebody like that is is talking uh, to other people. So it's, you know, in, in, a, in a time where you need to be keeping your mouth shut. Um, I mean, it's always been the case with this, but, you know, People are people, and 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 if if you can't necessarily even retire, um, or leave the community and and get some benefit from it, sometimes the only the only thing you can do to make some money is to release a little bit of that. And I and I I find that that's been convenient for a lot of people in the writing community, where they can put their creds out there and say, hey, this is who I am. Um, and, but, you know, for those who can't or won't, uh, that can provide an, another challenge. You know, you've got this experience, you want to be able to put it out there, but again, you don't want to put it too much on your sleeve. Uh, I don't think I've gone too far to, to quote unquote, exploit, um, some of those things, but, uh, you know, you, you have your background and that's what, you know, um, you want to be able to share it, but then you're, you're kind of pulled back for, for a lot of other reasons as well. Yeah, there seems to be kind of like two different camps on on what you're talking about. I think there's people who say, hey, we need to have these books out here. We need to talk about what we do, at least what we're allowed to, because it gets young people interested in, in what we're doing in the next generation of uh, CIA analyst or the next special operations military veteran. And then there's other people who are like, 
the amount of books we've seen in the past 10, 20 years, it, it takes away, you know, and even less really with the seals, especially it takes away some of the mystique of, of this community. Yeah, it does. And, and I don't know where the right balance is in there. Um, you know, with the, with a limited fan base that I have, it does seem to attract a lot of guys that are interested in JSOC uh, or, or the black ops, uh, you know, type activities um and so sometimes i'll get emails and someone saying look i'm the special forces and i want to know how to get to tier one and what would you recommend or somebody that is tier one and saying hey i want to go into the agency op side you know how how did you do it and this and that and i'm like it's my my flippant answer is if you want to go, they're not going to necessarily take you. It's, you know, when you're not looking for it, that's when they'll actually find you. It, not really true, uh, because I think in many cases, I mean, there was one year that I had been out and uh, wanted to go back to the op side. I literally just put in a plug to the website uh, because nowadays that is how they're managing it. You know, from a, a process standpoint, um, got a call on a Saturday morning. You know, hey, what are you doing? And, uh, and, and we'd like to chat. So I, I think that the same opportunities are out there for other people, but again, it depends on what that motivation is. If somebody's just thinking they, you know, they just want to be doing things dark and spooky and, and they want to, you know, announce that to everybody and put that on their Facebook page that, Hey, does anybody know how I can get in? You know, you're probably not going to get in. So, yeah. but, but again, to your point, you know, that's one of the things that I, I wanted to do with the Task Force Orange series was not to expose secrets, but to show the community of smart special uh, smart folks that want to get in the special operations community, but also wanted to do things that was a little bit more technically minded. I wanted to show that you don't just have to be a shooter. You can get involved in something like this also and still have the opportunity to shoot some people if you want to. Yeah, <laughs> I like how you just threw that in there. And, and I definitely do want to get into the, the book, but what you were saying was funny with, uh, you know, guys putting stuff out there. Did you see, because I had a, you know, I interviewed him previously. Did you see the whole thing that happened with that guy, Gregory Wong, uh, a few months ago? I, I remember hearing the name, but no, I don't know enough about it. So, you know, he's a former military guy, um, but he's no longer. And, okay. and in California, he said that he wanted to... Uh, get out there with the national guard, you know, to, uh, you know, defend against rioters and looters and that type of thing. No one, no one was really responding to him, you know, and he was like, I can help out. And he, uh, got in, you know, the gear and, and took an Uber to meet up with national guard dressed like them, but he apparently had stuff on him that was not. <laughs> so you did hear about this. Yeah, that was that. Not supposed to be part of the uniform got yeah. arrested. The crazy thing is I, I noticed he's still posting on Instagram regularly and <laughs> which is surprising to me, right? Because it's California. He had, you know, a, a pretty uh, impressive arsenal on him, which, you know, he's not allowed to have. I, I, I don't know how he's not in jail currently. I mean, that's a pretty big that, that's pretty big offense beyond the gun itself, uh, imitating a member of National Guard. I, I don't know how he's free if and it appears he is. I don't know. I do not. <laughs> but that's all that's you know what you're saying with guys putting stuff out there on the internet you know that, that's why i really um appreciate some guys that we've both talked to um like the guy we know who wrote under the alias kurt schroeder you know who is an actual volunteer with the peshmerga who actually flew out there and volunteered that those guys i respect not people who go out there and have to announce it on facebook 
Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 odd. I mean, it was even a challenge for us in our um, selection and recruitment from work that we were doing is how do you find a person that is actually doing what you need them to do, but that isn't um, advertising it? Yeah. And so even when you would get and so, you know, in that case, you have to stay with a close community and and find out, OK, do you know somebody? Do you know somebody? Do you know somebody? But every now and then you do get somebody who is just reaching out because they don't know what else to do. And so you, you have to vet that. And there was a there was an instance that that uh, we ran into uh, years back where um, some of my bosses went ahead and recruited a guy who supposedly had the creds and they had talked to him over steak dinners. And so they're going to bring him in and blah, blah, blah. And so they kind of announced it, wanted to push out there that you know they're involved with this guy. And, uh, and lo and behold, I found out from some folks that I knew in JSOC that were saying, Hey, I hear you just brought this guy in. Um, that's a problem. So, you know, when you can't vet it, um, that, that's a real issue. Uh, quite honestly, it was, a, it was an issue where I was on the opposite side at one time because I went into a SOCOM meeting um, with 3X. And in, and in, in my case, I was told, so you're talking about more of the operational side. Uh, I was told to let these guys I was meeting with um, who I was affiliated with. And I had gotten in, uh, the, the meeting through uh, General Grange to General Scott. And so, you know, here I had already had it, but then I was supposed to drop these other two people's names, um, two of which were uh, Delta plank holders. Thing was, nobody had told them who I was. So those guys, you know, someone immediately responded to them. And then these two guys are calling me up and saying, well, who the hell are you? And, and why are you dropping the names? I should have, I should have never have, have dropped the names without talking to them. That was a lesson for me. But by the same token, you know, they're thinking, who's this guy? How could he have gotten this meeting? Who is vetting him? And then if that is the case, then why are you dropping our names? Because, uh, you know, those should have sufficed. And, and so it, it's, it's a circuitous issue. Um, sure. And, but, but nonetheless, it is what it is. Yeah, no, it's just, it's an interesting community uh, and an interesting thing to be a part of. So yeah, let's definitely get into the book itself. Presidential Retreat is the latest one. Came out earlier this earlier this year, pretty much right before everything hit. Book three of the Safe Haven series. Is, is this going to be the last book of the Safe Haven series? As far as that series goes, I mean, it, it was it was kind of, kind of a convenient way to wrap it up. So I had written... Two books. Um, I mean, just start when I just started out writing, um, and and those were. Um, I didn't focus too hard to get those published because I was still working with the publication review process. I didn't really know how that was going to work. I was still doing some government work, and I didn't know how that also, you know, what was allowed, what was not allowed, and, and didn't have the exposure, even though I was using a pen name, JT Patton. Um, but. When I finally did figure that whole process out, got picked up uh, by the publishing world, uh, the publisher had said, look, this book series that you have is great, but uh, we need something fresh because we're not going to buy your old stuff. Um, so come up with a different idea. So I came up with the idea for the Task Force Orange uh, series, but I really wasn't sure how long this relationship was going to last. And they gave me a lot of autonomy. They're a little bit um, uh, decentralized. So they didn't notice that I brought forward almost all the characters. 
<laughs> um, short of the one main character. And so I, 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 I dropped the old series, started with the new ones, wrote Buried in Black, um, then wrote um, Presence of Evil. And when I, um, and we can discuss this later too, when, when certain government and military elements had prevented me from really doing a lot much more with that series, I went back to write the third book of the first series, which was Presidential Retreat. And that was the book that tied in both series very tightly to make some introductions. So essentially, I've got two publishers for this. Um, and the, the, the Presidential Retreat is the one that ties it in. Since that time, um, I sold that series to Force Poseidon, a, okay. a smaller imprint. And, uh, and so they're going to publish those three books. But, uh, but yeah, it was a fun book to write. Um, it was a book that I had wanted to write for some time. I felt like uh, a lot of the readers that I did have um, who were with me from the very beginning were kind of missing some, some pieces of, of what had happened, you know, with the last book, Prime Charge, and said, you know, when are you going to deliver that? So I felt like I needed to, I owed it to them uh, to create some, uh, to, to fill in some gaps. I felt like I needed to do that bridge so that there was continuity of stories. And, uh, and I had been on a vacation uh, with my, uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and their family, and we were out at Martha's Vineyard. And, uh, and my 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 mother Hanging with Obama, yeah. Uh, <laughs> my 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 mother-in-law who uh, couldn't do a lot of walking, um, you know, wanted to see the island, but uh, but we were just going to be there for a little while. So my brother-in-law rented a, a tour bus uh, for us to be on a private one. So nice. we had this little bus just driving us all around the island, and uh, and this guy's driving this like white van, and uh, and so he's telling us all the stories about the island. He's saying how he used to be a cop. And as a result, he gets to be a part of the presidential motorcade. I'm like, oh, really? And so tell us a little bit about that. And he's like, oh, you got to check this out. And so in the seat backs, he had all these placards for what he had to put on the car whenever the president came in town. So he had his ID, he had what everything, what Secret Service would give him. And he's telling me, oh, well, if you wanted to go see the president this way, you just go the back way around. And so all of a sudden we kind of detoured this scheduled trip to show us a few more of these nuances of the presidential retreat. And, uh, and so we got the inside lay of the land of all of these potential threats and risks uh, to the president based on what this guy as a local was sharing with us. And he had no, no idea that, you know, I was doing any writing and, you know, because I was sitting right behind him, I'm taking pictures of all of these IDs and, uh, <laughs> and, and these placards and I'm writing all these notes and my wife's like, you're going to write another book, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, this is just too good. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how that came about. So I think for, you know, even though, you know, uh, Trump doesn't, go to uh, um, uh, to Martha's Vineyard and you you know you'd never wish any will or ill will on any president uh, for those presidents that you know go uh, this is kind of an interesting viewpoint of really how I think you could exploit a lot of fissures in in these things and so that's what was fun for me is taking that research taking the characters but looking at something that is a potential risk and uh and and how to show that so it's uh it's it was a fun fun book to write i i feel like i ask this a lot when we have authors on who write uh series books but yeah. for people just getting introduced with you could they pick this up and 
get started or, or should they start with the first book in the series? No, they, they could. Uh, and that's also, they could pick it up. Um, there's some little nuances, but honestly, uh, you know, one of my weaknesses, I've, I've got a bad short-term memory uh, these days. I can mm-hmm. hardly remember the characters' names um, from one to another, short of, you know, a couple of the, the main ones. So I do have to do some recapping in the books just to make that story flowing because I can't remember if I wrote it in the last one. I'm not about to reread the whole thing just to write another one. So, um, so there are bits and pieces, but I think that it's entertaining enough um to be able to pick up either one and and they're they're fairly fast reads so so you you jump into that one or you know same thing with the task force orange ones you could jump right into those that series without having read the first one but if you read those two enjoy it then you can go back and and start from the beginning did did you always have the desire to be a, a fiction writer no no um as a matter of fact you know this is kind of an interesting story so uh one of brad thor's good friends was one of my good friends and so it was through that relationship that um that uh brad's friend uh sean uh, ended up being one of my main characters because he and i had made a bet of who could actually write a book uh, we were both avid readers and we were just talking one day about you know how so many people are making a lot of money in this space and don't necessarily have the the insights that that we have and you know maybe we should do it so like i said we made this bet i started writing and realized that there was a whole hell of a lot more to writing than just having the inside knowledge and and quickly realized that i was out of my lane um and compared to you know the other great writers in this space but uh, so i've had to i've had to learn it and so i think that the other thing that's kind of interesting for my readers, and I get this as feedback a lot, is those who started with book one and have made it through book five and stayed with it was like, you know, by book four and five, you actually kind of figured out a little bit of this writing thing. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting, too. And and maybe a footnote for those who start with books four and five and then go back to one thinking, like, can this guy even put together a sentence? Um, <laughs> you know, I had to learn two different styles. So writing fiction novels from having classically trained intelligence community writing uh, and DOD writing, as well as consulting uh, community writing. So I've had to learn from business writing, intelligence analysis, and then convert that into fictional type of prose. Uh, while I'm still doing the work in those other things, it, it kind of jacks with your head. And I think it, sometimes you, you can tell um, that, that, you know, I don't have necessarily the talent or the experience that a lot of others do, but uh, you know, I'm getting there trying. <laughs> yeah, you keep downplaying. <laughs> you're uh, you're right. No, you, look for the audience. Uh, there's a ton of people, especially in the field who, who read your books and love them. Yeah. And who, who are uh, some of your big influences on your writing? I would say, um, you know, initially in the storytelling, it was more of a Stephen King. Um, and and I read all of the, you know, the Hobbit books as a kid, so Tolkien. Um, but then I started picking up into, you know, some of the, the old Mac Bolan books um, and, and some of that pulp fiction. Um, I started reading Clancy. And so I think when I initially started writing, it was really detailed, uh, a bit flowery. Um, but then as Brad Taylor, Brad Thor, uh, Mark Greeny took over into the thriller space, all of a sudden that pace was rapidly accelerated. 
Um, and so now you know, here, here I'm trying to learn how to write from what I've learned. And now all of a sudden these, these newer guys, um, were, were changing the landscape of it. You know, they're killing Ludlum, um, and, and some of the, you know, the, the classic, uh, writers of espionage, because all of a sudden you had this fast pace that was meeting today's, um, interest. And so while I'm learning to write, then I had to kind of revise it and then kind of find a balance. And I think even, even now, as I'm shifting over to a little bit more suspense, uh, it's kind of going back to the King type style of a little bit longer, you know, if you're vested in an escape of a story here, it's going to be, I'm not just going to accelerate it because of the fact that you probably don't want 250 pages, you know, of detail. You just want shooting and body count. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, no, for the audience, uh, you were kind of telling me before there's professional reasons you're switching over a little bit more to suspense. Yeah, um, you know, a little bit disappointing. So as, as we've alluded to, um, I have to uphold obligations to, to the intelligence community. And uh, so anything that I write, even if it's uh, fiction, has to be reviewed. So my first, you know, my first books were all reviewed by, uh, by CIA uh, and then they had to be passed over to um, NSA and DOD. Um, I didn't have a real problem uh, with the agency, and I know that they've got a lot of a lot more flow. So it started to take more and more time. And then came the Task Force Orange uh, series, and uh, and I think they kind of shit the bed um, with, with that one, and and freaked out a little bit of of just the topic. Um, I didn't have as much direct experience into that and, and that what I did, I didn't put in there. Um, but they kind of moved the goalposts on me. So here the, the, the technical rules are before you let anybody see anything that you've written. So your first draft, you need to submit it to the agency. And then in my case, depending on who else I worked with, they would then send it to another intelligence uh, member uh, agency. Um, after that was all approved, then you could finish your writing, resubmit your final score to them, and they would approve that. That worked out great because DOD's requirement was submit to us the final uh, version that you're going to publish, and we'll review that. So it took a long period of time, but it still worked. And And after I got the uh, CIA approval, then I could actually have an editor take a look at it. Uh, and then they can clean it up and have DOD. And once they give me a thing, then I was out the door. Now with the TFO series, because I was involved with a number of those components, agency passed the first review jurisdiction to DOD or DOD requested it. So think about that. I have to show the final copy to DOD but the first copy to the agency. But if DOD is accepting it, then they're the ones that would say, no, you can't send it to us yet because we have to see the final copy before the intelligence community does. So what ended up happening was this was taken over a year's uh, time uh, because of the way that I couldn't finish it. I couldn't finish writing it. I couldn't share anything because of the obligations. And then they would take a year's worth of time. Um, so I wrote one book under that type of a, you know, kind of a dress pain in the ass. And, mm -hmm. uh, the second time, uh, it had gone beyond a year and I'm like, guys, what's going on? Um, I, you know, can you give me anything? Can you give me any feedback as to what the agency has reviewed? They said, no, we can't do anything like that until we've had our final review, but it prevented me from giving them 
a final review. And I said, you know, what's going on here? And the guy, you know, kind of in an aside said, look, it's too sensitive of a topic. So you've got the agency that's a little bit pissed off about it just because you're still writing stuff. Uh, NSA was pissed off about it because even though I had changed the names of things, it was still a an ent uh, 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 some of the technical things were still things. Um, and then of course the 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 JSOC component was was a little bit pissed off because of the very nature of them wanting to keep it secretive. And even though I wasn't exposing so much, the very nature of SIGINT and the tradecraft and the locations and things like that um, were too close. So the guy said, I gotta be honest with you, you could expect your next book if you write it, it could take you a couple years to get it back. Jeez. Yeah. So you know, and and are they? Does it really take that much time? No. Um, so I, I mean, I'm not saying that it's this huge conspiracy theory, and I'm not saying that you know, if I was selling a, a million copies, that that you know the publisher wouldn't find a way around. But I can't, I, I can't afford to to get a lawyer for something like that. And honestly, if they honestly had that much of a problem with it in the community, if somebody's saying this is really exposing too much, um, I, I would respect that. And so that's the position I've kind of taken where I, I just have to respect what I don't know. I'm not going to cry foul of this big conspiracy and, you know, wave my arms and say, look what you're making me do. Look, if I'm not selling tens of thousands of copies of these things anyway. So it's not like the, the community is saying, the, the reader community is saying, you know, we just can't live without you, JT. You know, these books are everything to us. So it's uh, for me, it's all right, let's try something else um, because I do enjoy the writing. And let's, and it ultimately for me, it's about telling stories uh, about yeah. people and the darkness within people. And so I think I can do it in a different way creating something unique. So I'm going to move a little bit into the suspense side for a little bit and, and give that a whirl at the very least, you know, I'll, I'll improve the craft of writing and then we'll see if we go back. Hope you guys are enjoying this episode. If you are, be sure to follow at JT Patton books and tell them that you enjoyed him coming on. Uh, as I always say on the show, we don't ask for any uh, listener donations or Patreon or any of that stuff for only fans of Tonto. <laughs> I'm thinking of, of ways people would crowdfund. Um, and, and he will be back next episode, of course, which I didn't mention. Uh, he's out doing his thing with Battleline Tactical. And uh, that's how we make this thing work. But, you know, he'll be back. This is not just me on here. Uh, but with that, yeah, as I always say, guys, support our sponsors. They're doing great things. And you also still have time to sign up for the giveaway for Tonto's Toolbox. If you're listening to this on Monday, you have a few more hours left, so go to their Instagram at Fort Scott Munitions. Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC-spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed-out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI tumble upon impact ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in every state, as well as direct online through, write it down or uh, go to there now, 
F-O-R-T-S-C-O-T-T-M-U-N-I-T-I-O-N-S.com. That's FortScottMunitions.com. Use exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast. And hey, even if you're not picking up ammunition, they got some great hats. They got other great merchandise. So if you support the show, support them and use our promo code BATTLELINE at FortScottMunitions.com. And it shows them that people who listen to the show really support what they're doing, and it helps keep this partnership going. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. Let's get back to my friend, JT Patton. You saying all this is likely going to make some people want to check out your previous work and be like, hmm, what, what was so secretive that he was that he was being censored for? So. I, I will say... And and I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not too much of an ego person, but I will say that if you like, you know, the thought of drones and SIGINT and and Big Brother uh, surveilling and domestic ops as well as the foreign ops and you know the Task Force Orange element, uh, nobody else has written those books, a series just like it. The the closest ones was the Activity comic books or graphic novels um, that had had come out um, and. Uh, you know, those, you know, kind of faded away a little bit. I think, you know, with the exception of some nonfiction, nobody really covers it because not that many people know about it. So I would say that if anybody had an interest in it, that would certainly, um, you know, satiate those interests. And I'd say the first series, uh, from my standpoint, really gives um, a view into how some contractors are used and when they're taken out of the business community and put into the operational side, um, I, I don't think that much has ever been written that way either. It's not this super heroic guy. It's the same type of person that's going to go to D.C. or go wherever out in the world and then still come back to you know Chicago or wherever they live. Um, so it's a different view into the, the the black ops side, aside from you know SEAL Team Six and and Delta, you know, kicking in some doors. I, I think this is going to make people want to pick up, like I said, your previous work for sure. Uh, talking about the Big Brother stuff, you know, with uh, everything going on now because of COVID, whether intentional or unintentional, when you hear about uh, apps that are tracking social distancing and, you know, how many people you've been in touch with who uh, this, you know, basically like six degrees of separation of who has COVID that you've been in touch with. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lot of these maybe being done, as I said, with noble intent, I'm not a big conspiracy guy, I, you know, but I, I do think this technology is going to lead to some weird things. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, I'm a little bit hawkish when it comes to social surveillance. Um, I mean, but that's just, you know, kind of where my nature and interests are. And, you know, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm OK with some of it um, because I guess I was on the, the opposite end. Um, but, uh, now that actually my professional side, um, I'm a, a cybersecurity, um, advisor because I see all of the breaches that do occur. Most of the time we can't keep up with protecting, uh, the technological advances. So as much as we are going to do, you know, potential surveilling and the tracking and, and monitoring and stuff like that, you know, where is that data going to go? And, uh, and so that's that that's that's concerning and i think that's you know similar to this even this uh, suspense book i'm writing that deals a little bit with genetic testing and where that data is stored um you know what 
has anybody thought about what could actually be exploited by having that type of information? And so I think that is that like this the stuff that we've seen come out about these companies like Twenty Three and Me that you know people that that your, your DNA is being sold <laughs> to third parties. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, and and that's why the price point is is so low, really, uh, because. In a lot of cases, they want to, you know, pay their expenses, but they're making more money off of the other company that is buying that information. And I think that as you look to the degrees of separation, and I guess this comes back into, you know, my supply chain disruption days, um, folks aren't really recognizing where a lot of that data is going. And some of it's going to China, some of it's going to Germany, some of it's going to the UK. Um, and but if you look under then those sub layers, where does that go again? Some back to China, some to Russia, some back to us. Um, so it's really interesting. Some to uh, Israel. Um, so that's that's really interesting. In this book that I'm, you know, this new one that I'm writing. Um, in this case, I had found a company that's doing some genetic type testing that, ironically, goes from Europe to the U.S. to Israel, back to Germany, and then back to Israel. Um, and, and so I think if you think of some of the, um, you know, if you go back to Holocaust days and you think about, you know, the role that Bayer had, uh, to play in, in, uh, in, in the, in the, uh, the poisonous gases and some of the other, you know, Monsanto now, and some of the, uh, the things that they had done, you know, when you think of your traditional roundup weed killer, that's coming from Johnson's wax. Well, if you follow that supply chain, it goes all the way back to, you know, Nazi Germany. Um, so when you do the same thing with the genetic testing, it's interesting to see who some of those old players and, uh, and new players, uh, are and what links they actually had. So it's, it's, it's pretty scary stuff. That, yeah, that is absolutely crazy. When people were doing the whole DNA testing thing and it was a big craze, I was, I was pretty skeptical. I mean, I've, I've personally never done one. And a lot of the information you find out, you know, you're like, I kind of know this. I remember like my mom did it. You know, I know my mom is pretty much 100% European Ashkenazi Jewish. And that's what we found, like German, <laughs> Polish. I, there wasn't anything new there. Yeah, um, I, I did it because I, for me, I, I weighed the risk and I and I weighed the curiosity. And uh, and for me, I you know, what are you going to do? Um, and is, is somebody going to... Did you learn anything new, though? Were you part Native American or something? Or... I, no, I Well, you know, that was funny because there was a time and it was at the very beginning where it showed that I was like 1% North African. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. But then as you look through the traits and because most of my I think it's I'm like 75 percent um, Scandinavian, uh, Northern European, you know, no, no, no surprise there. Um, but if you looked at some of the points where it said that I also had some bloodlines, it ended up, you know, a little bit of England, a little bit of, of France, a little bit of Holland. And so you can kind of follow the route of where. Uh, traders were going, uh, you know, the Danes were going. And so it, it, it falls into the, the actual story of, of what you would expect to see. But I, I thought that was kind of just kind of interesting. Yeah, but now, but you just have me thinking now with all this, because uh, I've heard about the, the basically third party stuff, but I, w I wasn't aware of how many nations this type of thing is being sent to. And, and also that when you do the backstory of, of the companies involved, that, that is some scary shit. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And I also think people, there's people more um, cautious of 
what the government is up to. And then there's the people more cautious of like what private enterprise is up to with our data, with our in private information. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I had been, my data had been exposed through the OPM uh, things, which, which really sucked because uh, my uh, in-laws are, 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 are foreign. Um, they had immigrated here, you know, decades upon decades ago, uh, but yet it still had a lot of their personal information because it had all my data from my background checks. So, you know, th that type of exposure is really scary, not, you know, notwithstanding just everyday citizens. Um, so I, I don't know, I think depending on the, the use, but it's just getting so pervasive. Like right now, if I think about my social security card, uh, your number getting exploited, like, you know, whatever, it's already flapping out in the wind. Um, so it's just a lot more vigilance on our part and a lot of, you know, different ways of, you know, dual authentication, et cetera, you know, yada, yada. Um, and, and or just, you know, thinking, okay, why do you really need my data? But then, you know, there's that aspect of it of chances are it's already out there anyway. So really what is somebody going to do with it? You know, the, the price of, um, personal identifiable, uh, information, uh, is going down because it's become such a commodity. Um, PHI, the personal health information also, you know, what used to be, you know, a couple hundred dollars for a packet of that information is also going down. So it's, you know, it's, it's been so exploited, how much value is there really to it? And it's only, you know, to that nefarious thinking of, of what that actually could be. I mean, we think about COVID and all of the, uh, conspiracies about, you know, genetic engineering. Well, what if, you know, through these 23andMe's, uh, they did determine what type of a genetic, a, a gene was most susceptible to allowing these receptors to open, you know, get exploited by COVID. And, you know, can we white, wipe out everybody that's got red hair, you know, or a certain gene that might be, you know, uh, attracted to that, you know. So I think those type of things are pretty interesting, but also pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Technology, there's always that double-sided uh, edge to it uh, so you, you said you're working on a uh, on a new book yeah um so it, you know again work in progress and uh i you know to me it was somewhat interesting i'd always promised my kids that i would write something that they could also read um and may have interest to so in this case it's about an old um an old nazi uh, who had been double crossed so that he could get some genetic treatment before he was to hide uh hitler's gold um you know, some problems happened there and he ended up uh, leaving uh, the, uh, the the camp. He was le leaving Auschwitz and ended up leaving with uh, a number of uh, uh, refugee Jews. Um, and, uh, and so they took him in, started working with Mossad, and he ended up being a bit of a Nazi killer um, and going around. But now as those days were uh, ending and his list was done, he meets this uh, boy who has uh, Down syndrome. And um, based on his knowledge of genetics and what he needs and what he thinks maybe this boy needs, um, there's some kind of interesting conflicts that arise as, as also people recognize that this old old Nazi is still alive. So, you know, a little bit still of the espionage, a little bit of, uh, of some of the, the tradecraft things, but I think it then also talks a bit about uh, humanity today and, and you know, is there uh, true love? You know, can this boy who one would look at as as disabled and um, and has a, a number of afflictions, but yet because he has this you know true love for a true human being and sees him for who he is, you know, is there hope um, amongst the hate? And so I think I think that'll be kind of interesting to see.
but then I'm also a shady yeah, bastard. That... So somebody's <laughs> somebody's gonna get screwed over. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty crazy uh storyline right there like i don't even i can't imagine how you dreamt that up that's a lot of different things going on in one book that's probably why the publishers will hate the shit out of it too yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're like how do we sell this <laughs> that's right but that's so. some, but that sometimes doesn't uh matter i've said it a few times before um on the show as an example but like i that interview i think it was the first interview david goggins did with joe rogan where he was saying that publishers because his book you know as, as successful as it was was self-published and he was saying publishers were like oh there's no market for a black guy and navy seals and he was like well that's not who i even care about appealing to like i don't i don't have like this narrow cast of my audience so sometimes the, these really unique ideas are end up being very successful or, or end up just connecting with readers yeah i i would agree and, I, and that's one of the things that uh i kicked myself for is that i did bow to the publisher in the Task Force Orange series, uh, because I did initially want to have uh, my main character African American or at the very least uh, mixed, um, and uh, and and they didn't want to go for it. Uh, they they talk about the target audience, you know, yada yada, and uh, well, as it is, I bowed to them and stuck with you know the regular uh, white guy, and um, you know it still didn't sell, um, you know, significantly. Uh, so I think that. You know, either way, I think it's best to be true to your characters and true to what you want them to be. And in this case, it's a story that I think is kind of interesting to tell. Um, it marks this year the 75th anniversary of uh, uh, Auschwitz liberation. Um, so I thought there was just a lot, a, a lot of different stories. And uh, I think that as we're talking about uh, inequality um, and and still the increase of um, anti-semitism that that really doesn't ever go away um i still wanted to kind of cast a little light to that my um i grew up in pretty much an all jewish neighborhood and uh even though we were you know christian reformed um and so i lived around a lot of holocaust victims and uh and, and so it was just you know something again kind of a part of me so whether it gets published whether i self-publish it um you know as i've said Scads of times before. I'm not making millions off of it. So as long as I've got to do the day job, um, you know, just have some fun and maybe somebody will enjoy the story. It's interesting you say that, though, because I'm pulling this up now. Did you hear about that story out of um, I'm looking at it from The Guardian. I don't know if it was originally from there because, uh, you know, you talking about this where th this this was all over Twitter yesterday. Uh, nearly two thirds of U.S. young adults unaware six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. And there's several other crazy statistics here. Um, Da, da, da. According to the study of millennial and Gen Z adults aged between 18 and 39, almost half could not name a single concentration camp. Uh, almost a quarter, 23% uh, said they believed the Holocaust was a myth or had been exaggerated or they weren't sure. One in eight, 12% said they had definitely not heard or didn't think they had heard about the Holocaust. This is like yeah. crazy shit, right? More than half, 56% said they had seen Nazi symbols on their social media platforms. Uh, well, that's not surprising. Um, almost half had seen Holocaust denial. So th those aren't, but I mean, th that's actually the crazy one. 23 uh, or 12% saying they hadn't even heard about it. Like, what are we teaching people that they, you know, we don't know our history. And, and it is because these people are dying off. I mean, I, I've had the pleasure of, of meeting several Holocaust survivors. Um, but then also like I had the pleasure of interviewing several guys who were Pearl Harbor survivors yeah. and, those guys are all going away. Uh, you know, World War II survivors, they're they're no longer going to be here. And if we 
I mean, I, I thought we were passing on these stories, but if, uh, judging by those statistics, if those are correct, uh, that, that's pretty scary. I would hope that those are, I don't know, poorly researched or something because, but it's also, I may be skewed because I live in New York. It's, you know, it's a little different than living in somewhere else. Sure. And I, I would agree. I, I saw that article too. I was a bit surprised, but um, I wasn't shocked fully because, you know, as we are rewriting a lot of history books, um, you know, and, and changing biases, you know, there's certain things that people think, well, we don't want to, don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to put this in here and that, and, and may, you know, but I, I don't see how that is, how that needs to be washed away, removed. And maybe it is just because it is a, a, a span of time. And that goes into, you know, that, that young history into older history. And it's just maybe in that gap year. But as you said, Pearl Harbor's still in there. Um, I think we're, I wanted to create some more exposure in, in my particular story was was really uh, the exploitation of so many children and 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 um, and and adults in the camps, uh, women and men alike, uh, for medical testing. Uh, much of which we enjoy the benefits of today because of those companies that were also uh, paying the the Nazis to conduct those tests and use and taking. A uh, number of prisoners to be their test subjects. Um, there's, I mean, when you think about just the human performance uh, of uh, in in soldiers, a lot of those tests were done during Nazi Germany, um, and then continued to those days. So I think that there was just a lot of progress made on uh, from from the the death and, and blood of uh, of many prisoners, and uh, and that's you know what I wanted to capture in this. But again. You know how many people know about Joseph Mengel and uh, and his tests on on you know the the twins and what they did and I mean live dissections, uh, amputations uh, of people just so they can just see how they would react and respond and could they sew them back together you know live and what would you do? Um, it's horrific and uh, but again how many people even know about that side of it? Yeah, I, I, it's really crazy, and, and and I don't know what the solution is either, other than passing on these stories. Because I, I don't know about you, I'm also not someone who wants to censor books out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, th there's other countries where you do write a book denying the Holocaust, you will like go directly to jail. I, I don't want that. I mean, I I am a believer in defending speech as controversial and disgusting as it is. So I I don't think that's the solution. But uh, you know. People do need to know about what's happened in our history: World War One, World War Two, all of that. Civil War. Uh, it, it's important, you know. And actually, now, right, you know, with the removal of statues, and not just Confederate statues. Now we're moving like, I mean, it, it's like comical at this point. We're removing the Texas Ranger from Texas yeah. airports. Rem, you know, removing, uh, removing people who were, who were against slavery, <laughs> like abolitionists and stuff. I don't know what's going on, but yeah, this erasure of our history, I think it's going to have some bad consequences. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, it, it, it's something I had, a, I, I had a thought there on something. I just lost it, but it's, um, it, it is interesting. I mean, I was even, even as I'm writing this book, I'm thinking of how am I even going to brand it and publish it because nobody really wants to say, Hey, it's a book about a, a bad Nazi. You know, that's, people don't want to hear about that. And, and even if you were to, I, well, and glorious and glorious bastards was a big hit. Yeah, it was, but you know what today uh, you would, you could, if they were to put even, I think on the, um, I think on the DVD cover and, and anything else it had, uh, it had the Nazi symbol. If you put that on social media, um, Twitter will take it off. 
Um, Amazon also has some some stipulations now about using uh, Nazi symbols and um, and the words. I, I think it's kind of interesting too because if you think about the Indian community, there's a lot of there was some talk too about them having a lot of removal of the swastika, which actually means purity um, in, in, in cultures of India. And so it's not necessarily the Nazi symbol, uh, but that's what it's been taken as. And so there's certain things that have been restricted there because somebody's saying, well, can you believe it? They've got a, a Nazi symbol on that. And, uh, and that's, you know, not what it was, but that's what was exploited even for, you know, the actual symbol that the Nazis did use. Yeah, no, I've seen that around too, but once something is shown that, you know, as like the landmark, and the example of modern day is it's so fucking stupid, but that Pepe the Frog thing, like <laughs> the guy who created it was supposed to be like this funny comic and somehow it's become like linked to white supremacy. Right, right. So, yeah, we're living during very weird time. And, and like I said, I mean, I don't agree with the whole censorship of, of media. I, I mean, I've I've personally bought books that are very controversial. You know, I, I when I heard about Tim McVeigh's uh, inspiration from the Turner Diaries, I was like, I, I want to read this. It just. Out of, out of pure curiosity. So I'm not someone who wants to ban um, those type of books. You know, at the same time, I do want people to know what actually went on in history. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, uh, it's, it's sad. Um, I, I was just looking here today. Um, you know, I'm just looking at my shirt and, you know, I've got some Nordic runes on there. You know, that's even being exploited now by people saying, well, that's just, you know, for Aryans um, to, to put on. And so they're you know, almost hijacking, you know, the Viking type things and everything is, you know, on the on the military extreme. You know, we'll see, a, you know, till Valhalla, uh, everything, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a dumb Swede, you know. And so <laughs> uh, but it's you know, it's 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 sad of how things are getting, you know, hijacked or exploited. Uh, but then be, people don't follow the history to understand what these things actually are and then recognize that, you know, it's it's really quite benign. I got to send you uh, that video that comedian Kyle Dunnigan did. Of uh, I don't know if you know him. <laughs> he's, he's put up so much funny stuff with all the stuff going on right now. Like it's it's a trailer for like a fake show of this guy who put up like a minor offensive tweet and he throws himself into a wood chipper and a uh, a group of like female scientists uh, puts him back to life to make him like the most sensitive man today. And he goes back in time and cancels people. You have to see it, but it's it's really funny because it's just such a parody of what's going on now that, you know, that's good. And the, the like the theme song has something like what was appropriate today, you know, is not was not appropriate years ago. And you know, it's it really is crazy. The whole it, I'm thinking of something else now. You know, that's sort of related, but just if someone said the wrong thing ten years ago, fifteen years ago, they're canceled. You can't grow as a person. You can't change. You can't learn new things. You know, we have to remain pure to what our ideology was when we were, I don't know, eighteen or something. Yeah, it, you know, and that's that's been really eye opening to me. Um, even with the Black Lives Matter and just an increased sensitivity of of younger um, kids, uh, it's you know raising raising three kids, one of which is in college now, and then my youngest is thirteen. Um, there are some certain things that we will say, um, you know, as having grown up when we did. I, I you know never necessarily grew up with you know n-word uh but certainly the r-word uh you know came about a lot and we didn't mean anything by it but yet as you're understanding and because there is more talk about the sensitivities um you know those things come out and so there are there are times when you know i, I might say something and 
you know, the kids are like, Dad, you can't say something like that. And I'm like, I just said, you know, like Chinese food <laughs> or something. It looks like Chinese food. You know, it's not a disparaging remark. It was noodles and it had a water chestnut in it or something like, yeah, but you, but just because it's that, it doesn't mean it's just Chinese. You know, I'm like, I, you know, come on, <laughs> you know, but there, there's, there's limitations and I'm finding out, you know, some of those boundaries too. And, and, you know, wanting to be sensitive and appropriate also. And, and in some cases, you know, they were mindful of, you know, just, just certain remarks that, you know, are, are inappropriate. But you're also, as we said, although not a military veteran, you're from that military community where I think not, nothing is, is meant to be offensive. These are just the way that guys, especially in that community talk, it's never meant to be, you know, harmful. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a fan of the whole censorship of everything in language. There is something with intent. Uh, there, there definitely is a difference between, you know, if something is done with the intent to, to really uh, hurt somebody, it's very different than just throwing some word out there. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I would agree with it, but I do, I, I think the one thing that I have learned is that as, as a white male, um, I probably am not the best judge of some of those, you know, of the, of those you know, terms or words or, or jokes or something like that, because you know, I, I've not necessarily had to uh, to deal with that or been impacted by it. Um, I, I have, uh, you know, my kids are, are mixed race. My wife is Indian. Um, and there are just some things that I guess I, if I had married somebody else Caucasian, I probably even wouldn't be sensitive to, to some of those things. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, there there was a time, right? It was It was right about the time that Trump was elected. I'm not saying that there was a a, a direct correlation to it, but I will say that during that certain period of time, I feel that a lot more people were emboldened to express certain things verbally than than they might have been otherwise. And I, I just I feel that, but I also saw it at, at that time. Um, so I will throw a little bit of data analysis into it, and just instead of just an opinion, but uh, but there were times when they would just call uh, you know my wife an Arab. Um, you know, in, in a derogatory manner, just not saying, oh, are you, you know, from the Middle East or something? And, uh, and so there was that, there's that point where as, and, and even, you know, I used to travel to Alabama with one of my college buddies, uh, his wife is Hispanic and, uh, and my wife and his wife at one point, they're like, all right, yeah, but we want to stay on like kind of main roads. And we're like, well, why, you know, what's, what's going to happen there? Like, you don't know what it's like when we actually go into some of those stores. Um, and, and you're right. I don't, uh, I, I don't yeah. hear some of those things. I don't see some of those looks and that. And so I, I'd say that's part of what's, you know, also been a, a good time out of, okay, a little bit of, of awareness. Maybe I had a little bit more than many others just because of my personal situation, but, um, it, it, it is a little bit reflective though, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and right now I think we're just living in a time where the pendulum has gone so far one way that we're going so far in yeah. another direction. And there has to be some type of, of middle ground between all of it. I mean, going back to the removal of, of statues that shouldn't be removed, you know, yeah. Cer certain ones probably, you know, you can make the argument should be. Uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, we're living during a during a very weird time. This whole quarantine situation, it's been it's been really crazy. And I, I know I said in a previous episode, it's like we went from trying to fight this virus to, to fighting each other. I, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it is a shame. I mean, it's it's almost like we we as a people to be able to come together have to have a diversion 
uh, of something really uh, horrific. I mean, we just sell, you know, past the anniversary again of 9-11. And, you know, there's no shortage of pictures out there showing of, you know, everybody coming together uh, during that time, either to, to rebuild or, um, you know, to support one another. And so when you look at, okay, how, what, what happened at that time when you were, when people were saying thank you and bringing water bottles to a police officer to the point where they started dumping that water on a police officer. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, there, there's, 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 there's obviously reasons of those things that have happened, but as you said, you know, some, some things have gone to the extreme. And, uh, so how, how to get back together and how to have a unifying force. And it, I don't make many political posts on my social media, but I had put one out not too long ago. I guess it was on 9-11 the night, night before saying, I don't really care who we end up with in this election. Um, as long as somebody will act presidential in a way to be viewed as a leader, to have the capability to unite people, uh, to calm fears, to, um, uh, to, to be that, you know, father figure of a nation, um, to create some healing and, and to be able to lead with some, with a form of an, of an integrity of which we would like to hold ourselves up to. I, I, I was thinking the other day about this and, you know, thinking of some of my bosses and thinking of, you know, if, if, are these the two people that we have in this country that's still, you know, the best that we can put forth? And, uh, and I think a lot of people ask that question, you know, where are some of those people that who do look like a natural leader to us? And, and, you know, one of my best bosses was, uh, was Dave Grange and uh, General Grange. And the guy could just walk into a room and, uh, and, and command a good amount of authority. It wasn't a hard ass. I, I've also had the most, the hardest laughs I ever had uh, with that guy. Um, but there's just a certain thing about how people carry themselves, how they communicate and, 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 you know, some of their experiences. And so I think that, you know, for us to heal as a nation and for some of this to get behind, I do think at all levels of, of local government, state government, and, you know, federal government, I think that we do have to, um, emerge again with, with a, a type of a leadership, um, you know, a face of the nation and uh, of, of the people that, that can also be that chief um, chief citizen. Um, and I think that's important for the years to come. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, you know, on, on a positive note that I really would like to, uh, you know, wrap things up with for the audience, there, there's a lot of people who we always talk about may have a dream of writing a book. They, they may want to do what you do. And, and it might not be the same subject yeah. matter, but I think a lot of people have trouble just getting started. And you're someone who is not on, you know, a major imprint. This is something that you just love doing. What would you say to someone who has an has a crazy idea in their head, like the one you just described to me for the last book, and they, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to get started. And Because I think right now during the pandemic, uh, with people working from home, there's never been a better time to embark on something like that. Yeah, I, I you know, it's like anything. Um, you know, I, I just had my physical the other day and I'm overweight. And, uh, and so what do I need to do? I have to lose, you know, at least 20 pounds. Well, how am I going to do that? I have to take that first step. Uh, so if it's 30 minutes a day of walking, I just have to get out there and actually do it. Um, and the same thing is true with writing. You know, can you become a writer by still thinking about it and telling everybody about your story that you're thinking of in your head? No, get off your ass and start typing the damn thing. Um, it's not necessarily going to look pretty, but, um, 
you know, put your words down and, uh, and, and commit to it and do it regularly. The one thing that I have learned is just like anything, you know, you can't master it without doing it regularly. Uh, you can't go out shooting, um, you know, once a year and, and be a good shot. Um, I'm, I'm out there, you know, fishing with my son and I'd forgotten so much more that I had ever been taught. Um, and, and so I had to relearn certain things just about even the type of fish and the climate and the, you know, the barometric pressure. The only way I can do it is by just being out there on almost a daily or weekly basis. And the same thing goes through with the writing. You've got to be writing daily or almost daily for a bit of time. Probably the best resource that I've ever uh, read or heard on audio is Stephen King's um, book on writing. And it just talks about the craft of just getting off your ass, doing what you need to do, um, be uncomfortable with it. And then once you get something, then go to the next stage. Um, I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm pretty tolerant of most people and things and, and I empathize with people. But, you know, when I see folks that have put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into writing their story and then are are so frustrated because they can't find a publisher, they can't find an agent. And I see them playing, you know, for a year upon year and then going to a writing conference. Oh, I didn't meet anybody and I didn't get to do this, blah, blah, blah. You've got the opportunity to go out there and self-publish it. So, yeah. Yeah. More now more than so ever. So who cares if you didn't send uh, sell a hundred, a thousand copies, you probably were going to anyway. Um, you know, maybe yeah, if that's why you're in it, that's then, right. then it's like the wrong business. So just, yeah, for sure. I see the same thing. Like, there's people I know for like two years. I'm going to start this podcast. <laughs> like, Chris and I came together, honestly, last uh, August, because I, it may have been August or September, because he was in New Jersey for a speaking engagement. We were like, let's start this thing. And by November, we had a show right. up. You know, it, it should not be rocket science. No, it's just whatever you're going to do, you know, do. It's, you know, it's... You want to start golfing? Well, you better get to the range. Take a lesson. Get out there. Try it. You know, swing. But, you know, and you may find that it's not what you actually want to do once you learn that you have to put the commitment in. That's, it's one of the things that I recognized this summer was if I wanted to still spend time with family, still want to do what I needed to do, um, I couldn't write as much because it is a commitment. And so to do it for at least a few hours a day, well, with we're all, all together during COVID, you know, does dad just want to be even further isolated from everybody? No. So I didn't write much this summer. Um, yeah. Do you, do you have to seclude yourself to Because So I do writing for um, the other podcast I work on in the wild. Shameless yeah. plug. If you guys want to check it out, that's like the, my main job right now. Um, I write a lot of the stories and I usually don't write them from home. I go to Starbucks with my Chromebook and I write it. Um, I do have to be away from people. If I'm here, there's too many distractions. Um, you know, I had Frankie Palmieri from, uh, from Amur on the show, uh, the metal band Amur and you know, his music is extremely dark, but when I talk to him now, he's like a very positive guy. He's, he's in a good place, but he's like, yeah, I have to kind of get into a very dark headspace to be able to write this shit, you know? And, and I don't know if for you, if you're around your, your loving family, if, if you want to write about these like dark black ops topics. Yeah, no, I, um, I don't, but I also find that my, my, re my writing time is usually my best writing time is from about seven o'clock at night to 11. So in, with our schedule, um, that just also doesn't work where I, when I used to write though, the most is when I was on the road. I mean, I was on the road a couple hundred uh, days a year in some cases. Um, and so, you know, there was a year that I was in New York city for, I think it was like 170 days. Uh, my favorite place to write was in lower Manhattan on water street. I love writing in uh, Francis tavern. 
um, and a couple of those other smaller places. I like to write in a bar and I usually, you know, I like to have at least two to four beers while I'm writing during that period of time, <laughs> have my dinner. Uh, and I, I like it because I'm, I'm, I like to be in a kind of a dark, kind of a quieter bar, um, never more than about a quarter filled, because I also like to be able to see the people and recognize, okay, that's somebody that's got some kind of a, a unique aspect about them for a character or something. Um, and then I used, and I like to have kind of the music around me. So when I'm here at home, it almost feels a little bit sterile and it's, it's a little odd too. Why is dad going back to the fridge to just knock out four beers on his own? Um, <laughs> but it's, that's, that's just how I started writing by being on the road and that's what I was doing. And, and, and that's, that's kind of what became, you know, part of me. So wherever I would go at night when I'm done with work, three, four hours worth of writing, have my dinner, have a couple of beers and go into the next. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a change because now I, I've got to start writing again. And, uh, and so it'll be, you know, more to the Starbucks, um, area or now just outside or something and for maybe an hour and a half at a time. Um, so I'm going to have to adapt and, and kind of relearn some of that, but you know, still gotta, still yeah. gotta put the words on. I, I noticed for me when I'm in the zone, fully focused, I could just keep yeah. going, whether it's writing or editing, this type of thing. And then there's days where I completely just slack off and I don't get anything done, which I think has happened to you because I've seen your posts on Instagram where you're like, I got no writing done. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, and that's actually the cool thing with right now, because like, I don't, I don't currently work for a major company. Like I haven't worked for Sirius XM in years. I, and I get to make my own schedule. So like, there are the days where I intend to get work done and I get nothing done and I want to kick myself. But then the next day I will be in the zone for like eight hours straight being like, I'm knocking this out. And it's, it's good. I, I love not having a traditional work schedule or having to answer to anybody above me. If the work gets done, it gets done. It doesn't matter if, you know, when the weather was nicer a couple of weeks ago, if I spent the day at the beach and then the next day, got all the work done that I should have gotten done the day before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I do think though, for me, I mean, Look, I have to do my my day job whether I want to or not from, you know, 7:30 until about 7 o'clock at night at times. Um damn. It, that's commitment. Yeah, you, know, you just I mean that's just what's going on. And so, you know, I may have some breaks in between and may take a kid to a soccer practice or mow a lawn or something, but um ultimately that's about what I have to do. I if I was fortunate enough at some point to be working again with a publisher, I don't think I would ever have a problem being able to, you know, fully commit again, putting in the hours to do what I like to do. Because I do really enjoy the writing. It's just that part of that uh, capsule of where I, when I do write is after I've also had a long day. So if I'm tired from a long day, do I really want to get up four hours earlier before my day starts to do that? But if this was the only thing that I was doing, I'm sure I'd be able to adapt pretty quickly to a new environment and a new way of having to get that time in um, that, that right now has just been based on environment and, and stuff like that. So, so if there's big, that's true. That's true commitment though, that you're working like a 12 hour day and then working on what you love doing. Um, I know I already said this quote in a podcast before, but it always resonates with me. Like the artist David show did this great, um, really long podcast about just his journey into art and, and, very motivational in, in his way. If you go on YouTube and look up uh, like David's show, How to Be a Master of the Universe, it's, okay. it's up there in segments. He didn't call it that. I think someone reposted. But he what he said that I always think of, and it's very like harsh the way he put it, but he said like, 
you know, if you're at your nine to five job and then you get home, you want to smoke weed, you want to watch the Simpsons play video games. He's like, I get it. All that stuff is very tempting. He's like, but you're not a fucking artist. He's like a real artist. It does it inspiration, no inspiration. They're going to go home. They're going to create. They're going to make sure they get something accomplished. Yeah, I I, I can see that. And and I guess I, I'm also, I didn't realize it until, you know, now that I'm older that I must have always had something that I had to be doing and kind of put myself into it um, for those, you know, short weeks or so that I got involved with the bourbon stuff. You know, that's all I kind of wanted to think about. Like, oh, I wonder if you come <laughs> this and, you know, I'll spend maybe $30 on this bottle and see somebody will, you know, pay for me to, uh, to, to, to drink their bourbon and say something about it. And then, nice. I, and then I, you know, got a Jeep and then it's like, oh, I want to modify this and I want to add this and I want to add this. So I guess I do tend to uh, fall into something pretty heavy once I do get involved with it. Didn't realize it. I think that's what keeps life interesting, so. though, being like a real fan. That's right. It, and you know? so it's to, to, to be, um, I think that's the best way, just finding something that you enjoy and then just pouring your heart into it so that you can just fully enjoy it. And I think that as I'm, you know, now fishing season's about over and, you know, kids' activities are ramping up again and I'm starting back with writing, I know I'm going to have those days where my wife is going to look over and like, really, you know, you really need to be on the laptop again. You've been on it all day and now it's another few hours. <laughs> um, and, and it's like, yeah, I guess, because if, if I wasn't doing that, I'd probably find that there was something else I just needed to pour my, my time into. Yeah. And, and you're going to have this, you know, all this series of books throughout your life that people are going to continue to read. And, and that's your legacy more so than probably even your day, your day job, I would think. Um, sure. So once again, the latest book is presidential retreat, uh, which came out earlier this year, book three of the safe Haven series, jtpattonbooks.com at jtpattonbooks on Twitter, on Instagram. I feel like every time I talk to you, I mean, this is the first on this podcast. It's always a really good conversation. Oh, like, great. We, for the audience, we didn't have like many topics <laughs> planned or anything. And I, I think we covered a lot. I had no idea we were going to get into like DNA and you know, I'm just did. shooting the shit with my buddy Ian. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and you know, I, I really do feel like when you say my buddy, like I, you're a friend of mine, man. We somehow have yet to meet in person. You're one of those few guys. Usually, Everybody I've spoken to, I've met at Shot Show or something, or they were in New York at some point. I have yet to meet you. We we have to make it happen. I, and it's uh, me, you, and Jack Murphy. Or I know, I, and it's it's funny because I I meet Jack up for some beers, you know, at his house or you know around the city or something. But it, I guess it just never worked out. But we'll we'll get it we'll get it going as soon as I'm traveling again. Yeah, we'll make it happen. I mean, I can tell you right now, there's no reason to be in New York. There really is. Was there ever? <laughs> <laughs> I there was a time, man, where you know there was just so much opportunity everywhere you looked. Yeah, that that article James Altishore wrote. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but the whole thing about New York City is dead; it's never coming back. Like it, it, it is true that just a few months ago, like you go to the city, you meet all different types of people. I mean, everybody in my career, I met in the you know I'm not I was going to say here, but I'm on Long Island now. But it's like meeting Chris Peranto, meeting Jack yeah. Murphy. Andrew Wilkow, like these are all guys I met in this in New York City. There's so much happening at once. There's nothing out. There's no other city or town that's electric, electric like that. But you go there now and it's completely dead. And there's not really a reason to be there at the moment. I, I, I've said it on the show. Uh, I know I haven't really given details yet, but I might not be here much longer in, on in New York. And I mean, part of it has to do with the house that I live in was being sold. But 
uh, yeah, it's just not the same. It's it's not the same anymore, and and people are able to work remotely. And I mean, the sound quality of this, as you can see, it's like we're in the same room. So yeah, it it, it is sad about that. Um, I, I feel bad for you know the kids that have moved into these cities and are hoping to just you know experience that. And uh, you know, I I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, but then moved into the city for a, a number of years. I guess I was in there for about fifteen years or so, and uh, and. You know, we when we moved out to the burbs again, started having our family. You know, we used to always go back to the city, but now when we're thinking, hey, do we want to go to Chicago? Why? You know, you can't go to the restaurants really, and a lot of the beaches were shut down, and this and that. So, it it is sad, and I do hope that that kind of opens up again for us to be able to you know travel, see a lot of different things, and um, you know, and and honestly, I, I would like to get back to New York. It's uh, I do enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. For now, it's just same thing we've been talking about, adapting and, and making it work somehow. Uh, you know, there's only so much complaining we all can do. And I think for a lot of people, it's just been nonstop of like, when are we getting back to normal? None of us know. None of us know what this new normal is. So you just got to adapt and and find ways to make life enjoyable, make life worth living and, and do things that you're passionate about sure. as you've been doing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, with that, thank you for checking out this episode. Uh, if you enjoyed it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you listen that way, you know how easy it is. If you're on an iPhone, just go right to the app, look up Battle Line Podcasts, leave a five-star review. Do that now. Helps us out. And also go to FortScottMunitions.com. Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC-spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed-out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states, as well as direct online through fortscottmunitions.com. Use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE, one word, for 15% off your order, only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast when you go to fortscottmunitions.com. Dot com. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. Chris will be back next episode. If you guys want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Ian Scotto, and we're out. That's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast, but we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battle Line Podcast and on Twitter at Battle Line Pod. To sign up for future Battle Line tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never quit. <laughs>